Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to New Books and Music, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dan Moran. I am thrilled to be here today with Paul Metza and Rick Shevchik. Paul Metza is the winner of eight Minnesota Music Awards and the author of an autobiography, Blue Guitar Highway. Rick Shevchik was a reporter for 30 years and the author of 10 books, among them a look at 1960s rock and roll in Minnesota. And they are here today to talk about the new book they have co-authored, Blood in the Tracks, the Minnesota musicians behind Dylan's masterpiece, to be published in September of 2023 by the University of Minnesota Press. Welcome, Paul and Rick. Thanks for having us, Dan. Thank you. So, sure. Just a few days ago, Bob Dylan releases his 40th album, Shadow Kingdom. And, you know, the jury might still be out on that one, but the case of Blood on the Tracks is closed. I mean, that is Bob Dylan's 1974 album, many people regard it as his best. Now, your book is really interesting because it tells not the story of how that album was created by Bob Dylan and whether or not it's fair to call it the, the divorce album, as people do. But your book is about how a specific group of people contributed to that album's final sound. So what's the core of the story you tell in that book? I, uh, uh, Dan, this is Paul. Really, uh, where the story started, it's probably a little longer answer than than you were expecting. But in 2001, uh, I had gotten an email from a group of Dylan fanatics in uh, Turkey that wanted me, they had, they had read that I was a performer, also a uh, folk singer, also from the Iron Range. I came from a town called Virginia, which is 22 miles uh, east of Hibbing. And uh, they wanted me to perform at a Dylan birthday party and were going to fly me over and uh, not only were they Dylan fanatics, they had a horse farm and a sailing operation. And that sounded like great fun. But as a um, lifelong Dylan fan myself, I said, well, it's ridiculous if uh, Minneapolis, where I'd lived already for 20 years, did not celebrate Dylan's 60th birthday. So I called uh, First Avenue, which is the, the club most known as uh where Prince recorded uh, the, the great movie Purple Rain, got a hold of a young guy named Nate Krantz, who happened to be a big Dylan fan, and said, I've got an idea to, uh, to do a, a performance with local musicians celebrating Dylan's 60th birthday. My next, he was all over it. My next uh, call was to Kevin Odegaard, who actually played guitar on uh, Blood on the Tracks, uh, Tangled Up in Blue, which is he has since donated to the Bob Dylan Center in Tulsa. And uh, he and I met in Los Angeles. I cold call him when I was out there in 92. We shared the same P.O. box in downtown Minneapolis when he moved back. And so I said, you know, not only would I love to have uh, Dylan songs interpreted by uh, Minnesota musicians, what are the chances of putting together the original members from Blood on the Tracks? So lo and behold, uh, after dozens of phone calls and preparation, we had uh, celebrated what we called the Million Dollar Bash on May 24, 2001. We had 40 bands on two stages. There's also uh, a smaller club called Seventh Street Entry. And we put together uh, this beautiful night of Dylan music. If you were, if you uh, 
or a costume as, as a Dylan song or a Dylan lyric you got in for free. Sold out show, 1,200 people. And we put together five of the original six guys who played on the record the first time they had been there since, uh, been together in one room since 1974. So that was the event that started the whole book. And now maybe I'll give it over to my co-author, Rick, about the, the gist of the book itself. The gist of the book is that the six musicians from Minnesota who played on the album were brought in kind of last minute. Uh, the record was already scheduled to be released uh, in early January, but in late December, Bob's brother, David, who Bob was visiting with over the, the holidays, suggested that uh, he didn't hear a hit. He didn't think it would get a whole lot of radio play. He wasn't dismissing the songs, but he just didn't think that this was the way for Bob to get back on the charts, so to speak. So he suggested, what about uh, bringing in some local, local musicians to Sound 80, the best studio in the Twin Cities? And uh, Bob agreed to do that. So his brother David rounded up these six musicians. Um, they had such a good night the first time recutting a couple of songs that they did three more on a second night. Uh, Bob was extremely pleased with it and then sent those five tracks back to New York to say, drop the originals. We're using these. Uh, three weeks later, the album comes out to rave reviews. But the names of the Minnesota musicians were not on the album. They were nowhere in the credits. And frankly, they've never been on the single CD, even to this day. Um, so the gist of the book is to tell the stories of these six musicians, where they came from, why they were selected to be on this session, what happened to their lives afterwards, and the effort that it took to finally get some recognition for the great work that they did. You talk about the, you know, you go through the, the 10 songs on the album at the beginning and they kind of like, you know, what, what, the, what the take was on each one. Was there anything you learned about what Bob Dylan himself thought about the songs? Because he, you know, half of the album, he thought, ah, maybe I could do better. Was it his brother trying to convince him that you can get a better hit or a better sound? Or what didn't Bob like about the quote unquote New York version or the New York sound? Go ahead, Rick. I don't think that that's totally clear even now what Bob didn't like about it because he is so famously uncommunicative. So you have to get that second and even third hand from the people who were with him at the time. And he wasn't sharing a lot of emotion about those songs. He was pouring them into the performance of the songs, but he wasn't talking much about them. Yeah, that's true. If you listen to Bob Dylan your whole life, you'll hear outtakes that you think, at least I do, like this is so much better than what's on the album or songs that got cut. And you're like, how did you leave this on the floor and put something else on? So like you also Blind made Willie McTell. Yeah, exactly. That's the most, the most, the most, that is the most famous example or a book, a song like Series of Dreams. I mean, you can go on and on about songs right. where Bob was like left them off, but he left on like Wiggle Wiggle or something. Um, you mentioned <laughs> Bob's brother, David. I'm saying Bob like I know him, but you mentioned David, right? So talk about the role he plays in this whole story and how he comes up in the book. Go ahead, Rick. David um, had a, career of his own going in the Twin Cities in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, he 
he was a musician. He played piano. And one of the really amazing facts that we turned up in this book, I mean, it was known to the people who were involved in it, but I don't think anybody else did, was that uh, Bill Berg, the drummer on the Minnesota Sessions, had actually played in a jazz trio with David in Hibbing uh probably 10 years earlier than that, even more so, maybe more like 15 years early. He'd, he'd been to Bob Dylan's house uh, a number of times, but this was after Bob had uh, moved away, gone to the Twin Cities and then out to New York. Um, but he still remembers David bringing out a copy of one of Bob's early albums and putting it on and saying, listen to this, this is my brother. And Bob listening to it and remembering that he'd heard this guy at Hibbing High School a few years before and had not been terribly impressed with him and wasn't really sure that even this album was going to um, be big. But what he did say was he recognized the quality of the songwriting. The voice, he was, he was not that sure about. But David, to get back to your original question, uh, ended up in the Twin Cities in the late 60s. Uh, and because of his connection to Bob, he got uh, some work with Columbia Records and uh, ended up managing a couple of acts in the Twin Cities, uh, including uh, Kevin Odegaard, who was the first local musician that David contacted to try to round up enough people to do a session. So... Um, you know, David was not real well known in the Twin Cities. He had done an interview with the Star Tribune a couple of years earlier because, you know, there's the curiosity of Bob Dylan's brother. Um, what's he up to? Uh, and he, he he has not been much more forthcoming than his older brother. He sort of learned early on that uh, the Dylan family business, part of the credo is you don't give out a whole lot. And that's kind of the way David has been. Yeah, like the Corleones or something. Right? Um, <laughs> yes. Here's a question for yeah. Here's a question for Paul. Um, as, Paul, as a musician, I, I think you'll enjoy answering this question. So, for me, who's not a musician, one of the big takeaways was how listeners can take like you know session musicians, sometimes called studio musicians, for granted. We just you know take it for granted. You know who's playing with Sinatra and this, unless you're like a diehard you know fan. A lot of times you just take it for granted. And this book really made me appreciate the people that come together to make an album that you might have heard you know a hundred or a thousand times. So, can you tell our listeners what is a, a quote unquote session musician and what are their professional lives like? Well, in this case, with uh, Bill Berg, the drummer, Billy Peterson, the bass player, uh, Greg Inhofer, the keyboard player. Those uh, guys were performing musicians at night. Greg played in a band called Pepper Fog. He played in a kind of a jazz rock fusion outfit. Billy Peterson was one of the first call uh, players in town when a jazz cat came in. He played with everybody from uh, Herb Ellis to Howard Roberts and was also playing with a great band with Bill Berg called Natural Life, which was really kind of a modern fusion band. So these guys uh, at night were pretty much making their living performing. And then because they were some of the best musicians in town, they were also called uh, to perform on jingles, commercials, um, different people's records. So they were uh, really playing kind of both sides of the, of, of the glass right in the studio themselves. And then also performing in clubs and concerts at, at night. What uh, what was interesting about 
how this book came about for me personally was when Blood in the Tracks came out. I didn't like it at all. In fact, I stopped listening to Bob Dylan for two or three years. I, uh, For me, I'm a blonde on blonde guy. I'm like, I like that wild mercury sound. And then by the time I stopped smoking as much pot as I was smoking in the 70s and kind of came to my senses and picked up a little more young adult uh take on it, I realized, no, this was actually, I refer to it now, Blood on the Tracks, as the mild Mercury sound. It still had that genius, but it wasn't quite as ramshackle and in, in really had a, in kind of a way more of a uh, folk edge shoot. Now, I became uh, interested in Bill Berg and Billy Peterson when I uh, saw Leo Kotke in 1970 at the Guthrie Theater, uh, which was the night it was such an amazing performance. I had been playing guitar for years, became, was a huge Leo Kotke fan. Leo played a set and then brought Bill Berg and Billy Peterson out uh, for the second set. And then they, they uh, both played on several records with Leo Kotke. So I was familiar with those guys. And then when finally when Blood on the Tracks came out it was a good record but it didn't hit me kind of where in that sweet spot where i love dylan of course um you know I, I i've learned to love it later but for me as a, a performing musician i'm you know uh 10 or 15 years younger than uh those guys well maybe a little less than 10 for billy p but i've seen them as performing musicians in concerts, and then I've, I've over the years I've ended up working with a lot of them and got to know all of them personally. So the interest for me in this book was to tell their stories, but because I think Rick and I we explain this in different parts of the book. Uh, these Minnesota musicians they grew up breathing the same air, swimming in the same lakes. Uh, dealing with the, the, the harsh, cold Minnesota winters as Bob Dylan did. So they had a certain persona in their DNA that uh, I think this kind of simpatico that really made the sessions organically flow. Yeah, that comes up in the book a lot that, you know, you are both native Minnesotans and you repeatedly make the point that there was something special about five of these six guys being from Minnesota. So Chris Weber is the, the odd man out. Right. So, like, can you can you push that a little further? Like, why do you think that was so? Because somebody could play devil's advocate and say, oh, well, that's just a coincidence. They're all from Minnesota. Who cares? But what was it about the, like the Minnesota scene or the Minnesota sound that you think came together in this album? Rick, how cold well, was it? That, how cold <laughs> was the first night? of the sessions. Let's start there when they all showed up in their cars and it was what, 30 below or with a windshield? We don't have an exact temperature. <laughs> uh, didn't go back <laughs> to the newspapers, but they all said it was so cold that the first thought was, we got to let our instruments warm up. We can't even think about playing until they assume room temperature here. Yeah. That was a great bit too about how you literally break the drum head if you don't if you know if you let it you know if you don't let it fall out so to speak. So you right. know, and again, I got this I got this great sense from reading your book about how hard these guys had to hustle and how much they had to work and and you know and if, to make a money to make money in the music industry is really really tough, right? And they, they all had side jobs like you know quote unquote day jobs. So 
let, let's go through some of those 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 jobs and some of these people. Let's talk about it a little more. So what I want to do is I want to I want to talk about these these guys. And so I'll say a name, and then one of you can give us a little backstory about how that person ended up in the studio. Um, let's start with um, Chris Weber. Well, Chris got into the studio uh, almost by bullying his way in because he had he had the guitar that Bob Dylan wanted, and once he, he figured out, party. once he figured out yeah, that he it was Dylan who wanted it, even though he wasn't told that specifically, he wasn't going to part with it. Well, he wouldn't have anyway because he did have this uh, this fiduciary responsibility to the guy who had brought it in. Um, you know, for him to sell, uh, he it would have been irresponsible for him to just give it to somebody to take into a session because I believe at the time it was a uh, oh um, I, I let's say it was a two thousand dollar guitar. The number is escaping me right now, but you know we know how much in nineteen seventy four a two thousand dollar guitar would sell for now. So he was gonna right. he probably just would have said no unless he figured out that it was Bob Dylan. And then it was oh absolutely, but I'll be there too. That's how he got in. Yeah. Now yeah, for because- Dan for your for your listeners to know, uh, Chris Weber was a uh, folk singer, a songwriter himself, but he ran a place called the Podium, which was the guitar shop uh, in Dinkytown which was there for years, and it was really uh, the go-to place if you wanted to buy a cool guitar. I mean, and you could spend, back then, you could spend two or $3,000, which those guitars would be worth twenty or thirty or 40000 now. Uh, they also sold uh, uh, dulcimers and banjos. They were a fix-it shop, and you could also get a lot of uh, music books there as well. So Kiss, uh, or so Chris was kind of the major domo uh, in that part of the industry before the you know 20, 30 years later you had the guitar center of all these, but this was a very cool boutique guitar shop. Let's move on to Billy Peterson. I want to talk about Billy Peterson and how he ended I, up in that studio. I, I'd like to jump in because um, Billy and I have gotten to be really good friends over there. Billy Peterson's uh, family is all very musical. The Petersons are considered the first family uh, in Minnesota music. Their father, Willard, played on WCCO radio, as did their mother, Jean. Willard was also the uh, uh, Minnesota Twins organist at the old uh, Metropolitan Stadium. And uh, I believe Rick didn't he pass away on opening day, when one of those first years. Uh, when, yeah, he, but, he uh, died on opening day, and Gene stepped in for him when he died. It was yeah. an amazing family story. But uh, but the other Petersons, uh, it's worth talking about to show you how talented this family was. So. Willard was one of the directors of the WCCO Radio Orchestra. Gene sang. Um, and then they both used to play jazz clubs along Hennepin Avenue, which is the main drag uh, in downtown Minneapolis, still is. And uh, Ricky Peterson, uh, there, Patty Peterson is the oldest. She is a great jazz singer. She's also a longtime radio host on uh, 
KBM, which is a great jazz radio station in Minneapolis. Her sister, Linda Peterson, is a jazz-influenced lounge singer. Uh, then there's Billy. Then younger brother, Ricky, has played with everybody from... Uh, he's currently uh, just got off tour with Fleetwood Mac. He's currently on tour with Stevie Nicks. Uh, he's also played with Miles Davis and uh, uh, just a host of others. Ben Sidron, who Billy plays with. Billy um, played with Steve Miller for years on bass. Was also, like I said earlier, played with Leo Kotke. And uh, just a who's who of any jazz performer that came in a play in Minneapolis that needed a bass player. And younger brother Paul was... Uh, uh, in a band that Prince put together called The Family back when he was St. Paul Peterson. And he's uh, a wonderful musician and, uh, and producer. And uh, so it's, it's really amazing that uh, uh, you have every kid in, in that, you know, you figured one would have gone to construction, one would have ended up in prison, but they're all very successful musicians. And Billy, uh, to this day, is working all the time. Wow. And we need to make this point about Billy, too. His heart and soul has always been in jazz. He played in a couple of rock bands when he was a kid, but, you know, uh, the rock musicians really couldn't keep up with him because he had been out gigging with his dad's band since he was probably about 11 years old. But even though he and Bill Berg absolutely were devoted jazz players and that's what they loved to do, they could do anything. They were so versatile. Um, you know, uh, the fact that... It, they played on Leo Kotke albums before they started playing uh, on the Blood on the Track sessions was the indicator to David, uh, David Zimmerman, that these guys would be perfectly matched to a more acoustic, uh, you know, softer kind of a sound. It didn't matter that, you know, they were listening to, uh, you know, uh, Chip Corea and whatever when they were at home. They could they could do a... a they could do an airplane or a serial commercial in the morning and then sit in with Leo Kotke and make his record sound great and then go play fusion jazz at night. And they were as good at each one of them as you could ever ask somebody to be. Yeah, you totally get, or at least I totally got that sense as a reader, which is that, okay, you show up, someone's going to play this song, we're going to do these keys, here's the chords, here's the charts, done. you gotta, you got you to gotta be a really, really quick study. And, uh, you, you know, you don't embarrass yourself in front of Bob Dylan, too. Well, and then, Dan, what's, you know, and uh, uh, what's cool is, so Dylan shows up, one example of, you know, it's not charts, you're not reading notes. He wrote the chords to Tangle Up in Blue on a... Uh, uh, part of a, a, you know, a brown grocery bag that he had just ripped off and which, uh, which Kevin Odegaard kept. And now I believe that's also down at the Bob Dylan Center in Tulsa. Oh, that's Frank, awesome. That's awesome. Um, so let's move on to the, the drums. So, um, you know, one of you could talk about, let's talk about Bill Berg, the drummer. How did he well, end up in Bill that room? I was a 1964 graduate of Hibbing High School. I actually, uh, was aware of him when I was growing up in the Iron Range. I, I took voice lessons from his brother, Roy. Uh, Roy's also a piano tuner, although you'd never 
uh, tell by listening to me sing, but uh, they were a very musical family. And the Iron Range had a really, uh, really terrific uh, music history and a real solid rock and roll history. So when Bob was playing uh, in his band, uh, The Golden Chords, uh, with Leroy Hoeklin and Monty Edwardson, they were playing where I ended up, you know, grew up playing when I, when I came of age in the seventies, uh, high school dances and, uh, in armories and VFWs in the Moose Club. So Bill was playing in a, a variety of bands. He was in a band, I believe called the Sherwood men, uh, little John he, and, and the Sherwood men. Yeah, that was it. Rick wrote about him and, and Rick's got a great book, uh, uh, which is one of the reasons why I got a hold of Rick uh, called Everybody's Heard About the Bird, about uh, 60s Minnesota rock and roll. Um, so, but he was also playing, you know, back then you'd play bar mitzvahs, you'd play funerals, you'd play dances. Uh, not unlike today, you take whatever gig you can get. But uh, Bill, uh, by the time he came down to Minneapolis, he had already had several years of uh, playing experience behind him. Rick, you want to jump in here about uh, Mr. Berg? Yeah, um, his experience, uh, again, is is really very broad, but he was balancing two loves, not only music, but he is a very talented artist. And uh, after he graduated from high school, having played in Little John and the Sherwood Men, who had kind of a regional hit, uh, with moving out. It's a song I can, I can hear playing in my head right now, a great, great surf song. I mean, Bill was a really good drummer. He, as a, as a uh, sort of a mid-teen, he was recruited to go on the road, he and his other band, to back up Bobby Vinton after Bobby Vinton had just had a couple of hits. And they toured all over the upper Midwest, probably during the summer. Um, so there was clearly a, a, a path for him in music. But his other love was art, so he ended up going to Chicago after he graduated from high school, uh, went, enrolled in art school, and then came back to the Twin Cities looking for a job as a commercial artist. But in the evenings, he would play jazz, and so he kind of had this dual life going until he got so in demand as a session drummer, and then he had several bands that wanted him to play. So the art side sort of had to get put away because he was just making too much money as a drummer. But he did pick that up later, as the book definitely points out. But Dan, what's great about the uh, artistic side, the visual art side of Bill Berg, is the cover of the book, Blood in the Tracks. That uh, sketch, uh, painting, is uh, done by Bill Berg. And that's really the only visual representation of those sessions that exist. Uh, and it took us a little bit. The unit University of Minnesota Press had their own ideas for these faceless musicians for the cover of the book. And, and Rick and I just went on the warpath and said, this is the story about bringing faces to these what have been known as faceless musicians for the last 40 years. We're not going to let you get away with that. So after a little arm wrestling, and it didn't take all that much, uh, when we finally tracked down an image uh, that was actually on a poster for a Blood on the Tracks live show in 2005, 
that graces the cover of the book. And so there's a per- beautiful synchronicity there. And it's, uh, uh, I don't think we could have asked for uh, a better cover than Bill Berg's drawing. Yeah, sketch. no, it's perfect. And it's also, of course, fits the, fits the theme of the book, which is about giving these guys credit and like putting, you know, putting, putting the life story behind the sounds you take for granted. So that was awesome. Exactly. So we're, that's halfway through the halfway through the session. So we, we've got the guitar, we've got the bass, we've got the drums. Let's move on to keyboards, okay? Greg, Greg Inhofer. Who wants to talk about Greg? Take it away, Rick. You, you're, you're, you're the 60s rock the keyboard and roll player. How do you end up in there? Well, I've, I've kind of become a scholar of Greg's career. And believe me, it takes a lot of study. Uh, I don't know anybody who's been in more bands than he has. Uh, and I'm not saying that he set any kind of record because – this is one of the things our book brings out is that if you are a gigging musician, and certainly if you were beginning in the, in the sixties through the seventies into the eighties, you had to be, you know, styles changed in a matter of months. Um, If you hit a dead end, you had to move on. You had to find something else to do or else get a job out of music. And these are guys who just didn't want to do that. They wanted to stay in music and they did almost whatever it took. And that's what Greg did. Um, you know, he was, he was a little kid, got beat up in school. Um, all he really had going for him was the fact that, uh, uh, he was an intuitive musician. He started taking piano lessons, learned that very quickly, then, uh, learned guitar very quickly. And he's been bouncing back and forth his entire career as both a a keyboard player and a guitar player. But he had been, uh, he had been mostly playing keyboards for uh, for Pepper Fog that morphed into uh, um, oh help me here Paul uh, the the Olivia Newton John uh, backing band uh, this yeah. oneness that that's the band this he oneness. was with and and he had played with with um, Kevin Odegaard several times when Kevin was putting bands together for various gigs. So that's how Kevin knew him. But almost every musician in Minnesota knows Kevin Odegaard because almost every one of them has been in a band with him at one time or another. He's, he's just incredibly versatile. He's very funny. He's got a, a just a fantastic sense of humor, so much so that uh, uh, probably the high watermark of this kitty band that's been playing in Minnesota for years called the Teddy Bear Band was when Greg was in the band and essentially got them into costumes and doing bits. And, you know, he, he, he probably could have been an actor as, as well as a musician, but it was, it was his luck that he knew Kevin when Kevin was looking for a keyboard player and David Zimmerman did not have a keyboard player in mind. So uh, he's really, um, well, I guess Peter Ostrushko kind of, lucked into it. And I guess Chris Weber did too, because of the guitar, but Greg was the one that Kevin really selected for this, uh, and said that, uh, he can do anything you need. And, uh, I, I still hear his keyboard parts coming out in the songs he played on and just spot on. He did a great job. You just mentioned Peter Ostrushko. Can you can you talk about him a little bit? Because he's certainly you know someone you read about in the book a lot as, as this this local hero. That it seems like everybody knew him, and like everybody knew how good he was. Rick, let me jump in here because uh, I've got a. Uh, I came to Minneapolis in 1978 from the Iron Range, and we had been hearing uh, 
Garrison Keeler's radio show, The Prairie Home Companion. So we were we were aware of Predestrusco, uh, and of course, uh, as a as a young folk and blues musician, I was aware of Colonel Rain Glover, and there was this guy we kept hearing about. Other than on the radio, it was Peter Ostrusko. The uh, the original folk scene, Dan, in Minneapolis started out in Dinkytown, which is where the 10 o'clock scholar was. Uh, in the I think that opened in about 59 or so. That's where Dylan started to first play. Uh, Spider John Kerner, uh, Tony Little Son Glover, Dave Snaker Ray. It's basically the heart Morton. of the University of Minnesota campus. Yeah, it was kind of the uh, uh, the Bohemian enclave. And then that moved over the years to the West Bank, uh, where you had uh, the 400 bar where a lot of us hung out in. Uh, Peter actually uh, got the phone call when he was playing pinball there. And then there was the Cafe Extemp, the New Riverside Cafe, uh, a little bit before that, the Triangle Bar in the Viking and Palmer's bar where you can still bump into John Kerner at about three o'clock in the afternoon, uh, reading his New York times and having his beer in the bump. But, um, so, but when I moved down, everybody knew about Peter Ostrusko and you'd occasionally hear him play and he played mandolin and fiddle was a very soft spoken guy had kind of longish hair. Everybody did back then in wearing glasses, but he had such impeccable tone. Uh, you just, when, whoever he played with, whether it was Dakota Dave Hall or Sean Blackburn, if you heard him on the Prairie Home Companion, you knew this guy was a musician's musician. He grew up in northeastern Minneapolis uh, with a Ukrainian family. He started playing when he was three years old uh, and was really kind of a, uh, specialized in Ukrainian folk music. And then like everybody else, Dylan comes out and like a Rolling Stone in 1966 and everything changes. Peter stayed true to his folk roots and, uh, but was also madly in love with Bob Dylan as so many of us were. Now, Rick, if you want to take it from there about Peter's very first time in a recording studio. This is one of the beauties of this book. Yeah, I think probably the most amazing thing about this story is that the only name that people outside of the Twin Cities would be likely to be familiar with is Peter Ostrushko if they listened to A Prairie Home Companion or if they were, you know, buying a lot of bluegrass albums because he released his own. Uh, he played on many other people's records. Uh, he was a le- well, I was going to say he was a legendary mandolin player, but I think it's, it's almost safe to say he was the most recognized and best mandolin player in America for uh, several decades. So he had this modicum of fame Afterwards, so if somebody had mentioned, yeah, you know, Peter Ostrushko played on uh, Blood on the Tracks. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Really, Peter Ostrushko? Uh, so that's a name that would have rung a bell with people. But he had less, um, <laughs> well, his resume was the tiniest of any of them when this record was made. 
Um, he essentially got called in because he knew a guy who worked for Chris Weber at the podium and the guy that worked for Chris Weber didn't even get on the record, but, uh, he, he recommended, uh, Peter and, and Chris Weber knew him too. Uh, so when there was a possibility that they might want a little extra flavor on the album on the second day of the recording session, uh, Peter got a call when he was almost delirious with fever. And uh, as it turns out, he shows up at the session, plays on one song, goes back home. And when he wakes up the next morning, he assumed he dreamt the whole thing because he was just so out of it with with his uh, with his uh, uh, with his fever, uh, so and it was the first time he'd ever set foot in a recording studio. He'd never done he, that he before. Was All he, go ahead, Paul. Why he he was only twenty one years old. In fact, when he got the phone call from his friend uh, Jim Tordoff, who was a really good banjo player and uh, fixed instruments for Chris Weber at the podium. Uh, you knew if you couldn't get a hold of Peter at his uh, apartment to call the 400 bar, which was right across the street, right on the corner of Cedar and Riverside, because uh, Peter was a uh, hardcore pinball fanatic. And um, I want to say too, Peter played on my very first record, uh, Paper Tigers in 1984, played fiddle and mandolin and also sang, which, uh, he didn't do a lot, but he had a really beautiful voice. It's one of my claims to fame is to have Peter on that song, Stars Over the Prairie. But Peter was so tired of being sick and tired, he went down to the 400 uh, just to play some pinball and got get out of his pneumonia-filled apartment. And that's when Tordoff called him and said, go grab your fiddle and mandolin. We're going for a ride. <laughs> That's a great story. So let's get to the sixth person. The sixth person is Kevin Odegaard. So let's talk about Kevin and how he ended up in that studio. Go ahead, Rick. I I think it's fair to say this book might not exist without Kevin. Uh, the session, uh, who knows what it would have been without him. And the funny thing is he only played on one track on that album. He only played on Tangled Up in Blue. And uh, to this day, Kevin will tell you, he doesn't care about the other four. He, he loved being there. He loved hearing how they came together. He's as jazzed as anybody could be. But he said that the experience that he had when he was allowed to play his guitar on Tangled Up in Blue was the highlight of his life. And, and the thing is, it wasn't just that he was along for the ride. Um, I'm going to back up just a little bit here because I mentioned before that Kevin was represented by um, David Zimmerman. And he had also uh, come from up north in Minnesota, not as far north. He was from uh, uh, Princeton, I believe. Uh, but he'd come to the University of Minnesota about 10 years after Bob did. And he stuck it out a year or two like Bob did and then decided he wanted to go to New York and have a career as a singer-songwriter like Bob did. Went to New York, got discovered, uh, came back to the Twin Cities to make his first album. Unlike Bob his career didn't really take off and he had to make a living. So he took a side job working on the railroad. 
and in fact, when he got called by David to come in for this session and to try to help him put a band together, he let the phone ring probably for a half an hour, assuming that he was being called to get on the train to go to Iowa in the middle of the winter. and He didn't want to do it. But finally, it turns out it was David. And he said, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I need a musician. I need, Well, what David said is I need this guitar. He didn't even tell him that it was Bob Dylan in town. Uh, but uh, Kevin was essentially in the room partly because of the guitar, partly because he helped David uh, pick Greg Inhofer, um, and, uh, and partly because I think David felt a certain amount of loyalty to him and thought maybe there'd be some, uh, some role he could play, but he didn't play the first night. Uh, he brought his guitar, he listened to the sessions, and uh, was very excited about it, but it was... It was the second night when they started with Tangled Up in Blue that he was given a chair, given a microphone, told, uh, you know, you're going to be sitting here right next to Bob. And when Bob played the first version of Tangled Up in Blue, there was silence in the room. And then Bob turned to Kevin and said, well, what do you think? And Kevin said, it's passable. And right right then he thought, well, my career playing with Bob is over. He's going to he's going to send me out of the room uh you don't tell a superstar that a song is passable but kevin was right what kevin understood about it was that the key was too low that there was there was lacking a little bit of passion that bob wasn't straining quite enough to get to the emotion of the song and kevin said kick it up a key um and bob said all right we'll try it Rather than firing him on the spot, he decided to try his suggestion, and you know, the result was magic. Yeah, that's my favorite anecdote in the whole book is because you again you you, you hear these songs so many times throughout your life and you just take it for granted, but that somebody said to Bob Dylan, if you strain, it'll actually sound better and you'll sound more emotional as the speaker telling the story, and that it just happened to be you know this other guy who I didn't know about until I read your book. I thought that was unbelievable. Well, what's cool and about it, Dan, think, too, is I think – go ahead. I just wanted to say that the reason that's so important in the context of this book is that we tr- we tried to get across what went wrong in the New York sessions. You know, I wasn't – we didn't interview anybody who was there, but there, there there's a, a big body of information from people who were there, and it's pretty easy to put together what happened. Um Bob didn't feel an affinity for the New York musicians and nobody there felt like they could really approach him and give him any suggestions. Uh, They went to Phil Ramone and said, we're not getting anything here. We can't, he's playing in tunings that, you know, we can't read his, his chord, uh, his cording hand. Uh, But Bob didn't care. And Phil wasn't going to get in Bob's face and say, you know, you got to help these guys out. And so back to this Minnesota DNA thing, for whatever reason, when the Minnesota musicians were in the studio with Bob, he was more receptive to that. He, he would not have put up with that suggestion in New York, but he did in Minnesota. And I think the other thing, Dan, uh, about Kevin Odegaard, uh, Kevin wrote a great book about uh, his experience. The session's called simple twist of fate, but the other, uh, important part of this book is what did these guys do afterwards, right? It's this, you know, this great, in a way, a spiritual moment in all their lives and historic as hell. 
But then when the record came out and they didn't see their names on it, uh, they had, it was like the lost opportunity of all lost opportunities. When I got together with Odegaard to put together this, uh, five of the six guys from Blood on the Tracks at the Million Dollar Bash in 2001, uh, this, and Kevin kind of credits me, and I'm not trying to take credit, but Kevin would tell you as much, with him starting to start the fire again for him leading the charge for these musicians to finally get credit for playing on that record. So, and what was amazing about that night, Dan, was it was a uh, packed house at First Avenue. Uh, The original guys from Blood on the Tracks were there. 75 people were dressed in costumes. And uh, Bob Dylan was at his farm about 40 miles west of Minneapolis. And my friend Larry Keegan, who was a lifelong childhood friend of Bob Dylan's, called Bob and invited him down to First Avenue and said, hey, it's really cool, no problem. And Bob was going to come down, and uh, but it started to rain uh, like cats and dogs, so he didn't make it. I can only imagine what would have happened had Bob shown up and played. But when those guys got together uh, and went into those chords of Tangled Up and Blue, the place was like off in the outer space. So what... Uh, one of the things I think Rick and I are really happy with this book is we told kind of an unvarnished tale of what happened. And in Kevin Odegaard's case, he went through a divorce. He went through treatment. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, in spent a certain amount of time in obscurity. So it kind of tells that real musician's tale until finally in 28. And, and they, they had done several reunions up at the Hibbing High School. They did a thing called Blood on the Tracks Live. So it really tells the journey uh, until finally they got credit when more blood, more tracks uh, came out in 2018. So it's a real, uh, it's a bit, the, that part of the book's a real victory lap for, for these guys. So now that Chris Weber and Peter Strushko, who we do, uh, dedicated the book to, have passed away, uh, personally as a musician and friends of all those guys and uh, from getting to work with Rick who, who uh, reviewed my band Cats of the Stars in Duluth in 1980. That's so far we go back. It was a real, I think we both felt really happy that we were able to tell this tale and uh, finally heard all these cats and, and tell the story. And it is a happy book. I mean, like the the joy that the two of you get from telling this story comes across in every page. I have to tell you, like it, it was clear, it was clearly a labor of love for the two of you to to do this book. Yeah, well, I love. Agree more. You know, I've been a fan, I've been a fan of Rick's uh, journalism for years, and uh, I had kind of how the the structure of the book came. I had done. Uh, well, I'd known the guys, so I knew a lot of these stories from just hanging out one-on-one. I had a television show. I have a television show and a radio show, uh, and I had uh, interviewed them when when the uh, uh, when the More Blood, More Tracks came out uh, in the studio. Uh, I also worked with a couple other guys on getting some of these stories. And so 
when we got some interest uh, through our agent, Michael Croy, from the University of Minnesota Press, who both Rick and I have worked with, um, I go, God, who would be the great guy to co-author this with? And I thought immediately of Rick Shevchik. Uh, I loved his book, uh, Everybody's Heard About the Bird. And so really, I just laid about 250 pages, 300 pages of transcripts on him. Rick then That's took great. it from there, did more interviews, and then he would get back to me and go, what about this? What about that? And I go, oh. I said, the owner of the 400 had a black bushy mustache, like a walrus mustache. <laughs> so I was able to come in, but really at that point, Rick did a lot of the heavy lifting. But I think uh, working together was really, uh, we both offered a certain expertise to make this a, a true collaboration. That's great. Can you tell, because I imagine some of our listeners will want to, will actually might want us to explain this, and you can do this certainly better than I can, but why didn't the guys get credit? What were they promised? What were they told? Why did it take all the way until, you know, the More Blood, More Tracks CDs came out for them to get their names on the album? Well, I'll take ahead, this real quick because I yeah. think it comes comes down to uh, what uh, Greg Inhofer suspects. Nobody has ever completely confirmed this, but... As soon as the sessions were over, David Zimmerman told the musicians that um, you're just getting scale for this session, but your names will go on your names will go on the back jacket of the next pressing because the first hundred and fifty thousand have already been pressed. That's how close to the deadline all of this was being done. They weren't going to go back and you know redo one hundred and fifty uh, album covers, but. Um, David was under the impression, I don't think he was selling him a, bit of go- a bill of goods. I think he really believed that what Columbia would do then was repress the jackets, add the credits. But Greg, in- Greg Inhofer believes that what happened was uh, at the Columbia offices, they kind of flipped out when they realized that these guys had not signed any releases that, um, you know, the they could be on the hook for them claiming in two cases that I can think of both Chris Weber on one song and Greg on another one, they suggested a, a, a very small chord change, but Bob agreed in both cases that that would make the song. He, he said, yeah, that sounds good. Leave that in. You know, maybe that's all it takes to get half of a songwriting credit with Bob Dylan, but there were no actual contracts signed. And I think Columbia was very skittish about, you know, being on the hook for a lot of money for these guys. So they probably just decided, let's leave well enough alone. If they want to come after us, we'll take our chances. We've probably got better lawyers than they do. So Columbia decided to save some money and uh, the guys got screwed. You talked about before, and this is my last question, but it's a big question. It's my big swing for the fences question for both of you. So, you know, um, Paul, you are a musician. Rick, you write about musicians. You talk about what happened after the after the Blood on the Track sessions and about how some of their lives go really well. Some of their lives take some unexpected turns. There's a lot of ups and downs. So what do you think this story overall suggests about the life of musicians or like, you know, having a brush with fame, so to speak? Rick, why don't you start, and then I'll, I'll follow up. Well, my my take from it is um, I was in bands, too, when I was in high school. Uh, after college, I was in a band. Even in my working years as a journalist, we had a band that played in the evenings. 
I loved it, still do, I still play, but thank God I never tried to make a living at it. And Kevin Odegaard, I think, is the most eloquent on that subject. He said that as long as he tried to be a working musician or at least have a band, he made sure that those guys got paid. He said nobody should be in this business with without getting some kind of a check for the work that you do. And and Kevin would take a job as a cabbie, t- took a job on the um, on the railroad, went to Los Angeles and worked to represent songwriters. And he just gives all the credit back to the guys who stayed in music all their lives because he said it's a hard, hard life. And <laughs> nobody, nobody knows that better than my co-author. <laughs> well, you know, Dan, uh, my motto has been for years, and I've had a, you know, on on uh, in my you know my own way a pretty successful career. I've done five or six thousand uh, professional shows, uh, made a bit of a name for myself. But most important for me, you know, my motto is the beauty of obscurity is you never go out of style. But I love life for musicians. I always have. I am one myself. But uh, the beauty of my life in the Minnesota music scene, it's not only being able to tell their story with, with what Rick and I have done here, but to be able to get to know these guys. And I've seen them. I've seen them on some of the finest stages with some of the greatest performers. And I've, with Inhofer and Billy Peterson and Odegaard and Chris Weber, to a certain degree, Bill Bergsman, uh, out of town for a lot of our adulthood. But I've seen these guys go through some really tough periods, too. They all have successful families. And I say... If you meet a professional musician or somebody who's been involved in the music business that has healthy and successful kids, that's about a biggest success as you can get because it can be a very down and dirty business. Dylan himself said it's like working in the mines. And uh, so for me, with these particular musicians, to play on blood of the tracks and to know them to this day and to be able to tell this story. The beautiful thing is all those years of toil, all those years of practice, all those years of preparation have turned them into be real artists and to be able to whatever stations they are in life and whatever gigs they're playing, you cannot take away from the fact that these men are all incredible artists that had a piece of uh, rock and roll history with Blood on the Tracks, and with the exceptions of Peter Ostrusko and Chris Weber, uh, may they rest in peace, are all living very productive, healthy, and fruitful lives. And uh, so I I claim as all as victors, and I, I couldn't be happier uh, to call them all friends of mine. Incredible musicians, an incredible book, and an incredible story. So Paul Metza and Rick Shevchik, thank you so much for coming on. Um, anybody can get a copy of Blood in the Tracks, the Minnesota Musicians Behind Dylan's Masterpiece, wherever books are sold. You can also get a copy linked from the New Books Network website. I urge everybody to read it. I loved every word, and I love talking to the both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you.
Thank you, Dan. Thanks, Dan.